So I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 2 in your version of the Bible, whichever version or versions you have at your fingertips. Many of you have Bible Gateway open on your phones or tablets, and so you have many versions available. And it's nice that we have access to so much of God's Word so readily these days. It's not a matter of if, but when. I'm taking a slightly different perspective looking at this passage again. Kind of been doing that a little bit through the book of Mark so far. Because I'd like to talk about timing and why timing is so important in God's plan and in the way he does things. I will uh, show you a picture that happened way back in November of 1985. Our oldest child, that's Katie, had just arrived in time to go to my graduation from seminary. She arrived just in time for us to travel to Michigan four weeks later in view of a call where I got to meet with a bunch of committees and get put on the hot seat and asked a lot of tough questions at a church in Ann Arbor where we eventually served prior to coming to this church. She arrived just in time to get the best health care possible in Texas because I think she caught a virus in Michigan and took it back to Texas with her. And it was probably something similar to RSV or something like that, but it was an upper respiratory virus and it was really difficult and she was in an oxygen tent, and it was a scary 48 hours, and yet she was getting some of the best care that she could have possibly gotten. Now that we look back at that, remember I said last week that hindsight is really a luxury because everything becomes clear. It became obvious to Joy and me that everything was falling into place and that God had his hand at play in every one of those particular circumstances. Katie didn't come with Joy up to Michigan for a couple of weeks because Katie needed to get better, and so they stayed with friends from our Sunday school class and the church we were attending at the time. My mom and dad had come to that graduation, and so they had a chance to see Katie and then also spent some Christmas time with us in early December. Everything worked out. Everything just worked out so well. But in the midst of all that, it seemed pretty chaotic, and it seemed like, we didn't know what to cling on to, so we just grabbed a hold of Jesus and hung on tight. <laughs> and sometimes that's all we can do, but it helps us hold on tighter with faith, knowing that God's timing is perfect. So even though things are happening to us at a specific time and the circumstances seem, seem crazy, we can be assured that God's sovereignty is at play and that his timing is always right. If you were to back up from that particular picture seven and a half years earlier, I didn't give you the seven and a half years earlier picture because I had very long hair. It was the 70s, what can I say? It was 1978, Joy and I had gotten married, and a lot of things had to happen before this first child came along. In fact, after a few years, some people, even though they didn't want to ask us outright, you could tell they were thinking, is there something wrong? Are you unable to have children? Are you going to consider adoption someday? You know the questions that people like to ask. And it was just a matter of, not a matter of if, but when. And the timing was perfect because Joy was just finishing up a really good job. She made more money than I could ever think about making while she was helping put me through school. And so she had great health care. And we were just kind of praying through the window of opportunity that we had when that pregnancy would fall under that health care. It was great. We had great health care, and her boss was good to her, and she had lots of time off. And I mean, God worked everything out in every bit of that timing. So when we look back again, even farther back than what I've shown you here, 
we can see that God was building up to something. And if we had known, if, if we had just heard him say ahead of time, trust me on this one because in this amount of time this will happen and this amount of time that will happen, we probably would have been able to say, oh, okay, great. But then that wouldn't have required any faith. So there's something about a walk of faith that says, God, I trust you. I've seen your hand at work so many times before. I know that this seems crazy right now, but I trust you because I know your timing is always right. Timing is important to God. One lesson that I keep being reminded of, you know some lessons we have to keep relearning? <laughs> uh, I have to keep relearning this one, and that is, I'm not God, and I don't know the future, but he is God, and he does know the future, and I have to keep reminding myself of that, especially when things start to pile up, and I start to feel a little bit out of control, because I like to work a plan, and sometimes the plan falls apart. We've all experienced a lot of that in just the last couple of years, I think. Have any of you wrestled about timing issues in your own lives, different places? Maybe you've asked God for something and you're hoping it would happen, you're praying for it to happen, and it just wasn't happening as quickly as you would like. Maybe it's related to a certain person at work. Uh, maybe it has to do with a desire for a relationship to either begin or blossom. You're hoping it would go to the next level, and you're not sure about that, so you're praying about that. Maybe it has to do with your next phase of education. Maybe you're looking for a college, or maybe you're considering some post-education courses to help beef you up in your degree program or in your job. Maybe it has to do with a big financial decision, and you're weighing, is this the right time to do that? Do we want to pull the trigger on this? It's a big move. All these things are things that I think all of us have wrestled with or are wrestling with at one time or another. That's why I thought it might be helpful for us to look at today's passage, Mark 2, 13 through 17, with this question as the filter through which we're looking. What does timing have to do with these events? That's the question I want us to be thinking about. Let's read through the passage together. I'm reading from the NIV version, Mark 2, starting with verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. Remember, I told you in the northwestern corner of the Sea of Galilee that about, uh, I can't remember the percentage, a very large percentage, something like uh, 60, 70% of the New Testament took place in this region. So he was there a lot, especially in the early part of his earthly ministry. He was out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him. Duh, that had been helping, uh, happening a lot, and it happens here again. And he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, if this were one of those, um, those shows that you get to they hold up a sign and you would react to that, kind of a melodrama, this would be where you would all go, boo, because just the very fact that he was at a tax collector's booth would be enough to send people over the edge. And that's, I'm sure, what Mark had in mind when he was writing this true incident and putting it out there for his readers, because they would have been reading that and thinking, wait, Levi, you mean the tax collector? Boo! Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, double boo! When you go to a sinner's house, a tax collector's house, that's even worse. Getting the feet under that guy's table, having an intimate meal with somebody like that, double boo. Uh, he was there, and at that house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. 
for there were many who followed him. Quadruple boo. I mean, I can imagine that some of the readers of this passage would already just be seething with animosity. Some writers do that for us in movies and television. We'll see the villain, and they make them so hateable that you're thinking, I can't wait until this guy gets his comeuppance. Because we know at the end of this story, this guy has to get what's coming to him. And that's, that may be what was happening in some of the readers' minds when Mark was putting this story forward. Now, when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples. Notice, they didn't ask Jesus. They asked his disciples, uh, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, now it doesn't say on hearing this from the Pharisees. Maybe he heard it from the Pharisees and overheard it. Maybe he heard it from the disciples who came and said, uh, Master, they're saying this. doesn't really matter. We just know that the word got back to him one way or the other, and he responded to it. He said, it's not the healthy one who needs a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Big teachable moment. And Jesus made sure that they heard that loudly and clearly. So let's look at this passage through the eyes of timing. Jesus had determined that the time in his ministry was right for him to start hanging out with people that other people thought shouldn't be hung out with, those sinners. He knew that calling people like tax collectors, were it was bound to stir up controversy. He knew that. And he did it anyway. He wasn't trying to sneak around and become a closet believer or somebody who's trying to do things quietly. He just put it right out there, even though he knew it was going to be extremely controversial. And some of these folks were looking at him as just somebody who was shaking up the status quo, and they didn't like it one bit, as we've seen from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. There's an author, former pastor, John Maxwell, who made some observations about the reasons people change. And, of course, Jesus was there to bring change into the world, not only to the Jews first, but also to the Gentiles. But I, I like this. It's fairly general, but I think it applies to most of us. Maxwell said, people change when they hurt enough that they have to change. They learn enough that they want to change. Or they can receive enough that they can change, that they're able to change then. When I see all that God had been doing in Israel's life, all the way back in some of the Old Testament passages, I think God started all that to begin with. And I think he understood they're going to hurt sometimes. They're going to have to hurt enough until they're finally ready to change. They're going to learn enough, and hopefully some of the lessons they're learning are because of some of the things that are causing them to hurt, including a couple of exiles. They're bringing this wrath upon themselves, as we talked about in Growth Encounters just this morning, looking at Romans chapter 1 and getting into 2. And then they receive enough that they can change. And so God wants to give them the provisions they need so that they can make that change. And that's what starts to happen in the New Testament. And Mark starts to get right down to brass tacks about that. So we can already see in context a whole lot of history building up to this moment. So timing was right. God's timing was perfect. Even when he allowed 400 years of silence between the next to the last Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament prophet who bridged into the New Testament, a.k.a. John the Baptist. I love the fact that they call him an Old Testament prophet, even though he appears in the New Testament. Some people go, what? But there's a good reason for that. And he came in the spirit of Elijah 
and he came ushering in this new huge change which would become the new covenant, the new testament. Well, God's timing was perfect. In fact, it says in Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the set time had fully come, in the fullness of time, I like that translation as well, God sent his son which means that God clearly had timing in mind when he was setting all these historic events in motion. Everything that had happened building up to this moment meant that this was the fullness of time. Everything was ready, and God sent his son. God knew that his chosen people had to hurt enough, learn enough, and receive enough so that they were ready for change. And even with that, even though they had all of the Old Testament ready at their disposal, they missed the master and the miracle, and instead they crucified him. Fortunately for us, millions of other people did embrace what Christ has done, and so we get to celebrate as we did this morning in communion, knowing that millions of other believers around the globe are doing the same thing because we're a part of this mighty family. The fullness of God. I think it's good for us to know that God has a fullness of time for us as well. He has a plan for each one of us, and he knows us, and he knows what we're going through. And in the fullness of time, he brings things to fruition that we've been praying for. Not always in our timing, but his timing is always perfect. Well, Jesus always followed his Father's direction. He willfully subjected himself to the Father's will. And early in his ministry... Jesus began angering some of these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, by winning the hearts of some people and angering others. And he did so on purpose under his father's direction. In fact, Jesus went so far as to demonstrate that it was those sinners, the people that these religious leaders didn't want to have anything to do with, it was exactly those people Jesus had come to save. Have you noticed that the people who got the most upset were, were religious folk? I think that's probably no, uh, no surprise to most of us, and it was mentioned even this morning in Growth Encounters that sometimes we Christians, we believers who have been walking with Christ for a number of years, may relate more to the Jewish people because of some of the things that have become tradition for us than with some of the folks that would have been those outcasts. And I've noticed in my own life that the older I get, it's easy for me to cling to the things that I know are right and to point fingers at other people who are different than I am. And so I think maybe Mark knows that in the future, people are going to read about this and God's going to speak to all of our hearts, including we folks who've been walking with Jesus for a while. Well, Jesus, in his interactions with these sinners is showing that he's doing something that's going to usher a change because he's trying to show what the kingdom of God is like. Uh, he might be showing, if we can use the term now that came after Christ was killed and then rose again, the term Christian, it really wasn't uh, being used at that time. That happened in Antioch, the town of Antioch later, when those people were trying to come up with a slur, some sort of a dig at the little Christs, which is what Christians mean. So they started referring to them as, oh, look at those little Christs over there. But the nickname stuck, and so we're Christians because we're walking around like little Christs to those around us. I hope so anyway. But he could be showing us, if we're going to use that term, what a Christian looks like. What is a Christian? I think it's good for us to get our definition straight. 
Here's a definition that captures. It's a very simple one, but it captures what a Christian is. Someone who is justified with God through faith. And that's an outgrowth of some of the Paul's writings to the Galatians, especially 2.17. But today, if you were to use the term justified to somebody who's not a believer, who hasn't grown up in church, they might think of it about word processing. And that's okay because that's a good starting point for where this thing is leading. Because when I'm going to line up my words, they're all scattered all over the page. But if I can hit the little left justification uh, key, suddenly the words line up with something that's a straight line. And that gives us a clue. And it's really good. And if you start to learn about that word that's translated from Greek into English, you have an even better word picture to show us what justification is all about because it does have to do with lining up. But justified gives us this wonderful word picture. And let me share a story with you. And I apologize that it's a story about somebody hitting somebody else because I just did that last week. And I, I don't want you to think that I'm condoning people hitting other people. It just happens to be the best example, and I know it's hyperbole, but Jesus used a lot of hyperbole too, so I'm in good company. But here's the example. Let's say that in high school, one kid walks up to another kid, and a little exchange is going on, and the one kid just hauls off and slugs the kid right in the face and knocks the kid down, and he hits the ground so hard that he's knocked unconscious. I mean, pow. The principal who is down the hallways, only sees that, but from a distance. So what is he to think? Well, he sees this. And when we understand something about justification, the way the scriptures are telling us about it, it doesn't change the thing, it changes how we see the thing. Keep that in mind, because this is going to happen with this principle. So the principal, of course, is running around, pushing kids out of the way. He needs to get there quickly. He instructs somebody to get to the nurse and somebody else to call 911 because he knows it's going to need an ambulance. And then he gets up to that kid and he goes, that's it. I saw what you did. You're out of here. You're expelled. Because based on what he saw, this kid was guilty of assault. But the kid who did the hitting says, before you haul me off, look in that kid's pocket. And he points to the kid on the ground. The principal says, what? And so he looks down, and sure enough, inside the right front pocket of that kid's jeans is a pistol. And the kid has his hand wrapped around the pistol grip and his fingers on the trigger. Which means now that the principal has one little bit of information that's different, he sees the other kid who did the hitting differently. Nothing changed about the behavior, but everything changed because he was justified. He was proven to have acted justly. So do you see how motive makes such a big difference in this word justification and lining up to something? How can you show if something is just or not? There has to be a measurement by which we measure that. Talk about that in Romans. Well, the measurement is based on God's holiness, his righteousness, his ability to be right and in the straight line. He's the plumb line, and it's not because we can do anything through obeying the law that would make us straight that way. We can't. We fail every time, and we're crooked. But because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we're justified because of our relationship with him. And that's what Jesus came to do. And he came to do it for people who were those sinners, those people that the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't think were justifiable because they thought that they completely missed the mark because they couldn't live up to the law. 
They had a different method of justification than Jesus was showing. So Jesus provides perspective. He gives hurting people enough new information and perspective to better understand God's motives, to understand that God is not this master smiter who's always looking for somebody to step out of line so that he can smack them. He's actually a loving God, and Jesus shows that. He demonstrates it in so many ways. That's why he was spending so much time hanging out with people who were the outcasts and those sinners that the religious people disdained. But the reason for Jesus' timing in everything he did in Scripture was so that people could see God and his motives more clearly. And all of that helps lead us to the point where we can see what God is really like. He is God's audio-visual demonstration to us. But here's the big reversal. If that's all we did was to say that Jesus did that so that people would like God more, then that's, that's missing the real point. It's missing the theological point that has to be made here. If we were to think, well, maybe Jesus was sent to just kind of be the spokesperson, the propaganda guy for God, to try to present a different scenario about what God is like so that maybe we would like him more, and some preachers preach that way. I've, been, I've had a tendency to want to make God sound more palatable, but God is God. And we can't make him sound better than he really is or different than he really is. God is just God. He always has been. He always will be. So what's the big reversal? The big reversal is Jesus didn't do all that God told him to do so that God would be justified in the eyes of man. It's the opposite. The opposite is true. Jesus did everything he did so that sinful man could be justified in the eyes of God. That's what we celebrated at communion. God looks at us differently. Why does he do that? Because when he looks at us, lost sinners who have been justified by Christ, he sees Jesus' righteousness and not our sin. It was God on the cross, God incarnate, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, God the Son who was hanging on that cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the kind of God that we can know from Scripture and that we see more clearly because of Jesus Christ. So it was his atoning work on the cross that made it possible for sinners like you and me, because I've said this before, so I know it's not a surprise, we're all sinners, to be able to be brought into line with God's character. Not because of any moral right that we can do because we can't work our way into that, but because of what Jesus did for us. Jesus had said that this is what he came to do. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost, those who are not yet justified. That's the people he came to save. And he proved his point on the cross. So, in today's passage, when Jesus shows up at Levi's house, hanging out with the sinners like tax collectors and people who are not considered justified by the Jewish law, the legalistic religious leaders see one thing. They see a man who is shaking everything up, who is upsetting their religious equilibrium, who's stirring up trouble, claiming to do, oh, blasphemy of blasphemies, only those things that God could do. That's what they see. And they failed even after Jesus was crucified, buried, and then rose again. They failed to see that Jesus was all that he had claimed to be. Let me ask you something. What kind of a person would you want to be your physician if you knew you were really ill? You would want, I hope, somebody that knew something about 
his profession and who had compassion and was a good listener so that they could actually get to know what your real ailment was so that they would know how best to treat it. Um, the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, they were not those kinds of people. <laughs> now, I've known some really caring physicians. I, we have one in our congregation. Uh, I knew one guy. I told you about him several times. His name was Dr. Tom. He did missions work. Uh, he was the one in charge of my son's birth. He officiated at that momentous moment. And yet, Dr. Tom was so compassionate that even though he was a Texan and he could come across kind of boisterous, one time he showed us how compassionate he was because he called Joy and me and said, would you make a hospital visit? There's a couple that could really use some comfort right now because unfortunately their child didn't make it to full term and they're really grieving. And I had to break the bad news to them. They're, they're Baptists. They've come up here from another state and I think they would be open to your ministry to them. And Joy went with me, and I'm glad she did because she understood a little bit of that pain because she had had two miscarriages in our earlier history. So we went in. Joy held the hand of this lady. They listened, and we listened to their story. And then they told us something about their doctor. We already knew that Dr. Tom was very compassionate that way, but she said, I've never met a doctor like that. He came in, and he was almost more distraught than we, we were. He wept as he told us, the news that our child was not going to survive. Who does that? And I said, well, you're right. He's a very compassionate man, and we've known that for quite some time, but that confirms for us that he's a compassionate guy. I say that to say that Jesus is the compassionate man who sees our real ailment, and he sees all the way through to the very bottom of that. These religious leaders, completely the opposite. Jesus had said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. He was the one that wanted to be there. Jesus spent time with sinners because they were the people who needed what he had to offer the most. So when God looks at a justified sinner, what does he see? He sees the righteousness of Christ. What does Jesus see? When we're looking through this passage and others in the New Testament, in the Gospels, what did Jesus see when he saw a sinner? He didn't see somebody who was labeled by their sin. Like some doctors will say, they'll refer to their patients by their ailment and say, well, my gallbladder's doing pretty well. Or the, the broken arm in room 233 is being released today. Or uh, I, I had that one appendectomy earlier and I'm going to be going to see them and I think they'll probably be released tomorrow. Well, Jesus didn't refer to people by their sins. And yet the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law did see people that way. They would smack a big label across that person and say, oh, there's that immoral lady that I met last week. Or there's that wanton man, or there's that tax collector, or here's that drunkard down in the street. I'm so glad that I'm not like those people. But Jesus didn't label people, and he didn't look at them by their sin. He loved them enough to, to be compassionate toward them, and he saw somebody who was not yet justified. And somebody that he longed to draw into a relationship with God. That's what Jesus sees. We know that. The Bible says so. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So back to the idea of timing real quick as we're getting ready to wrap up. Timing was crucial to Jesus. The way he interacted with those sinners helps us learn how we can be interacting with people who are not like we are too. Even people who are not yet justified. 
unlike the Pharisees, Jesus did not require that people make the big change in their lives before they became justified. He met them where they were. The woman being accused of adultery, they were going to stone her for that. And, she, and he writes in the sand, he says, where are your accusers? Well, they've all walked away. He says, neither do I accuse you. He's there to show her that she can be justified. And then after the fact, after she has been justified, then he says, now go and sin no more. Timing is crucial. And I think he's showing us how we can behave toward others as well. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to be Christ-like toward people in need of justification, even though they're still living in sin that we know and we can label? Can we refuse to label them and call them by that sin alone and see them as somebody who's desperate for what God can give them? Do I have a vision? Do we have a vision about reaching the lost? I've had periodic visions about reaching lost people. I felt more fervent about it when I was first saved than I did when I got older, and God has to keep rekindling that vision in me because it's easy for me to become busy doing religious stuff. And I forget, no, no, my number one vision needs to be about reaching those people who are not yet justified. When I was young, I had an answer to prayer. I was in elementary school, and I prayed for my friend Bobby because he was not yet justified. He wasn't a believer. And I was shocked. When we said, I didn't expect him to say yes, I said, we're going to go to the Coliseum in Phoenix, it was a stadium, and see Billy Graham speak. Would you like to come with us? And he goes, yeah, I'd like that. Let me ask my mom. Hey, mom. And he goes with us. It shocked me. And then he talked through the whole sermon. And I was so annoyed because I'm going, God, what's happening? I invited Bobby here. Billy is speaking, but he's not listening. What's happening? And then Bobby shocked me again because when Billy Graham gave the invitation, Bobby said, would you go down with me? He gave his life to Christ that day. It's amazing. And it showed me that sometimes God will just shock us if we'll be aware that God does things in his time, in his way. Let me skip ahead just a little bit and wrap up. I was really inspired by the testimony of a man who showed up, a young man, college guy from Louisiana, uh, at the Valentine's Banquet last Friday night, virtual Valentine's Banquet. I'd never been to a virtual Valentine's Banquet, but it was in affiliation with Christian Challenge, which we help support. They're ministering to people on college campuses. And this guy had been on a mission trip, and he said they went to a country where it's very difficult to reach people for Christ. In fact, you're not really supposed to be talking to people about Christ, so it was a little bit dangerous. He said, but we had prayed, our specific team had prayed God, would you help connect us with a woman, especially, because I know they're so oppressed. And in this specific culture, it's hard for people to really speak openly. And I know we're asking a lot, God, but we would love to be able to have one good spiritual conversation with a woman. And he said, sure enough, God answered that prayer. And in a subway station, of all places, this woman started opening up to them. There were a couple of young ladies on the team, and she said, when I talk to you people, I feel like there's a sense of peace, and I don't get that with a lot of people. She said, and when I see you quoting from this book, it was the Bible, I have a, a sense of healing, that there's, a, there's something healing about this book. And they said, you can have this book. Would you like it? She was flabbergasted. They gave this young lady their Bible. And this young man said, we were only there for a short time, but this woman opened up so much. And so we're hoping to keep in touch with her, and we prayed for her as a part of that banquet. 
But his point was, I finally got the name of this organization. It's called One Link International. He said, it was One Link. We were one link in that person's life. And as I asked you earlier in the service today to pray for that one person that God had used that was a link to help you understand what communion meant and what the elements represented, all of us can be one link in somebody's journey to Christ. My question is, can we rekindle a vision for the lost, even people who are very different than we are, and just keep praying for those opportunities to become one link in the chain because God can use every one of those links to do what he's going to do in his time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful, not only for this word from Mark, but also for the fact that you place your people in strategic places for just the right time so that we can become one link in the chain. Help us to each become the link you need us to be in somebody else's life as we point them to Jesus Christ because we understand that you don't see us as labels of sin. You see us as precious children of God in need of redemption, in need of being justified, and you are willing to go to the cross and to take our place in order for that to happen. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.